invite you to turn in the Word of God to your New Testament and to the letter of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. A few months ago we heard news from church in Calgary that one of the ladies there had taken very suddenly unwell and had found cancer in various parts of her internal organs and she's been in hospital in and out and not sure all that's been going on, but uh, we just heard that on Thursday evening she passed away quite suddenly. And I know the family would, you may not know them. Uh, the Nemes first come into the church up there probably in 1981 or 82 or thereabouts. have been there a long time. And Bob Nemi was just recently elected as one of the deacons, one of four deacons elected there very just a matter of months ago. And so it's a time of sorrow for the congregation there at the passing of Linda. And I know that they would appreciate prayer at this time and the congregation as well. But as we heard this morning with the choir that when we have Christ we have everything we need we don't need to be worried that our sins have been nailed to his cross and we bear them no more and I'm thankful that's the case for Linda that she's absent from the body but present with the Lord First Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going through this epistle, and we last week began looking at verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, we'll read again from verse 1 through to the end of verse number 8, let us give attention to the infallible word of God, the gift immeasurable, that which is sweeter than honey, and the honeycomb. Furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. Amen. 
May the Lord give the light that we need as we consider His Word this morning. Let's still our hearts in prayer. Let us all pray. Lord, we thank Thee for the Gospel. We thank Thee for that which is so undeserved by fallen humanity. We praise Thee that it has pleased Thee to save men, to condescend to the needs of men, and to send Thine only begotten Son into the world to be the Savior of men. That He came not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. We pray that all that are saved here this morning would rejoice afresh in their salvation. And we pray that Thou wilt accomplish Thy purpose in all of our lives, sanctifying us more and more, washing us and making us whiter than the snow. We long to be perfectly whole. We pray that Thou wilt help us to cast down every idol and remove every foe, that we might have Thee as Lord of all of our lives. Do remember those that mourn today, not just even those in Calgary, not just our brother Bob and the family, his two girls and the wider church family there. We pray, Lord, that Thou wilt give them much grace. There are others here that are mourning over the recent passing of loved ones, and we pray that much grace would be given. We are glad, Lord, when we know that one has passed from this life into the presence of Christ. Sometimes we have not that knowledge. Give even more grace when that is the case. We pray now that Thou wilt help, give the Holy Spirit, condescend in a powerful and marvelous way, and deal with hearts as Thou dost see fit, bringing honor to Christ. We pray in His precious name. Amen. I don't think I need to spend much time this morning trying to convince those of you who have gathered here of the rampant immorality that is going on in this day and generation and all the related sins that have become a huge part of the culture in which we live. When we look at the day in which we live, when we see the kind of things that are going on, when we see people giving themselves habitually to all forms of immorality, all forms of debauchery, all forms of sin, we must never forget that regardless of what they may say and however else they may live, such people will never be in heaven. The Bible is clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And it begins there with a, a series of, of sins that relate to immorality. We have also in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And again he begins with adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. Then we have idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revilings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I also told you in time past, 
that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Living, and as I focus this morning, because that's what the passage focuses upon, immorality, uncleanness, adultery, fornication, living in this way, being guilty of these things, practicing them on an ongoing basis without any real deep repentance or a sense of the wrongness of it is a mark that you are lost. Now, I know much of these things have become the norm. A couple came into Calgary. I mean, they didn't really come into the church as such. A friend of the couple was coming to the church, attending the church, And after some time of attending the church, she told me about these these friends that she had, this couple were were professing believers, but they were living together and living in ongoing immorality. And her burden was that they would get married, and would I, I, if she could convince them, would I conduct the ceremony? And I said, sure, they they need to be married, and the sooner the better. But but this, this is where we've come to, that those that even profess the name of Jesus Christ that claimed to walk in His ways, to keep His Word, to love Him with all of their hearts, that they are completely setting aside the plain teaching of the Word of God and convincing themselves that they're still on the way to heaven, that everything is fine, that they've nothing to be worried about, that this is some, I don't know what they argue, but perhaps they think that this is old-fashioned, no longer relevant, no longer applicable to the day in which we live. I don't know. But as soon as we come to that point, beloved, we have cast aside the Word of God. No longer does it have anything to say to us in terms of us taking it at face value. We have begun to twist the Word and rest it to our own destruction. It is serious business. And given the rampant rise of infidelity among professing believers and the addiction to viewing all manner of perversity via the internet, the portion that we come to this morning and the trumpet that is sounded by the Apostle Paul to this church needs to be sounded afresh today as well. If we give ourselves to fornication, and all of its related sins, because the word in the Greek that's translated in verse 3, fornication, pornea, is translated in many other ways. It's just a general term of all forms of sexual immorality. And if we imbibe the practice of the day, the views of the day, and we begin to numb ourselves to what's going on and consider it not a big deal, and this is going on, I have to believe, that believers are being numbed to these things. There was a time whenever we were appalled when we would hear about these things, never mind that we've come to a point where we're now entertained by it. I mean, we look at Lot at times. We consider Lot. We, we look at his life and going into Sodom and we see him there and we, we lament at the decision that he made to go there and take his family to that awful place But we read of him that his righteous soul was vexed when he observed the sin that was going on in the city. Yes, we can argue and we can present the case. He should never have been there. But having placed himself there, 
and seeing the immorality of his generation in that particular city, his righteous soul was vexed. But we are at a point, beloved, and this condemns us all, I fear, where it's very easy for us to be entertained by the things that vexed Lot's soul. We argue for the right to watch things. It's only entertainment. It's, it's not real, we might argue, whatever. We are being numbed. Our consciences are being seared. Sodom is influencing our hearts and our thinking. And that's beginning to impact. It's, it's impacting the church. Within the church, we see the rise of things going on that, again, it's not that they never happened before, and we're going to see that. But the scale in which they were happening, the increase of them in our generation, clearly, it is not that the church is influencing the world. The world is influencing the church. We're being shaped. We're being numbed. So as we consider verses 3 through 8 of this chapter this morning, we consider it under the title, Called to be Pure. Called to be Pure. And this is God's desire for His people. Purity, you read down through these verses, and we will look at them in just a moment. This is the longing of the Apostle's heart. And things were going on of, of tremendous alarm. Even in this good church, I trust that nothing of such a nature is going on today in this church called to be pure. Notice as we consider this, the purpose of God, the purpose of God in verse 3. We looked at verse 2 already, and, and really what we're considering flows out of the foundation laid there, and we'll read verses 1 and 2 again. For that purpose, furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. I want you to keep going on in pleasing God in your walk. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, and so on. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. God lays it down very plainly here, Paul being inspired by the Spirit of God, for us to see that His will, His purpose is our sanctification. Sanctification is that ongoing experience in the life of the believer where day by day they are dying unto sin and living unto righteousness. A bit like any form of growth that we see, even in our children, from, from, from a day-to-day -day basis, we don't actually see them grow. But over periods of time, over months and over years, we can see advancement. And our growth in grace is very similar. It's not rapid. It's not let go and let God, and all of a sudden then you're completely as pure and as holy as you're ever going to be. The Word of God is plain. There is an ongoing experience of being set apart, of having sin removed and, and more good works exercised in our lives. 
where our minds and our hearts and our deeds and the whole part of our being, all that we are, is engaged more in that which glorifies God and less in that which dishonors Him. And this is His will. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. His will is for you to more die to sin and more live on to righteousness. He wants to see this. And, of course, the Word of God is plain and in the whole plan of redemption, how central this purpose is for the believer. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, and the opening part of that epistle, the Apostle Paul writes there in verse 4, According as He, that is God the Father, hath chosen us in Him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So here you have the doctrine of, of election being presented. We're chosen in Christ by the Father from before the very foundation of the world. But it's not left there. It's not just this election. This election is combined with the, with the purpose. To what end are we chosen in Christ? Merely for us to know we're going to heaven? There's a deeper work going on. There's a, there's a goal. There's a purpose that's unfolded there in Ephesians 1 verse 4 when we're told that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Holiness is the ultimate goal. And yes, we understand that whenever we leave and depart this scene of time, there will be an immediate transformation in relation to this. And our vile bodies will be changed and fashioned like unto His glorious body. There will be a transformation that occurs immediately where in that place where there is no sin at all, we are prepared to live there and inhabit that place without bringing sin with us. Such as the redemptive work of Christ, He has redeemed our bodies, and the full experience of that redemption still awaits the believer in eternity to come. But holiness is the goal. Later on in Ephesians, in chapter 5, verses 25 through 27 we read, and of course it's in the context of husbands loving their wives, and they are to love them as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. There's this sacrificial love. But Christ gave himself for the church. Why? Why did he give himself for the church? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now the application is there for us, beloved. If the ultimate goal is purity and holiness and com being completely sanctified before God, then the present experience is to be part of the journey towards that goal. Everywhere in the Word of God, we find this. Everywhere in the Word of God, this is emphasized. And when the Apostle Paul heard what was going on in this particular congregation, he was not shy to deal with the issue. And we'll see that in just a moment. We are to rightly represent the God that has saved us by the lives that we live. Just as unruly students are perceived as misrepresenting the school to which they belong, so unholy Christians misrepresent the God 
to whom they belong. And so we find again Peter telling us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, as obedient children. This is now as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you as holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. This is the call of God. You want to know the will of God for your life? Young person, want to know the will of God for your life? Begin here. Indeed, let this be foundational in terms of all that you understand God wants you to do and be. Indeed, it is as we apply ourselves to this ultimate goal, this ultimate purpose, that all the other areas of our lives trying to discern what God would have us to do becomes far more clear when this is our priority. It is the Christian that does not give themselves to a desire to be holy and to purify their hearts and to wash away their sins and to deal with them and, and deal a killer blow to those things that corrupt them and destroy their testimony. The Christian that has them and makes excuses for them, they're the ones that are constantly, uh, completely befuddled as to what they're meant to be doing. They never know what direction to turn, what to do. But the believer, largely, and I'm, I'm speaking in, in general terms here, largely that believer that prioritizes what God prioritizes will find that the decisions of life become much more plain to them. That the providence of God will lead in the direction they ought to go. They will understand what they're meant to do. Things will become clear and they're far less likely to make decisions that they regret later in life. Prioritize this primary and ultimate purpose of God. He glorifies Himself by saving sinners and commencing this work of changing them from glory into glory, transforming their hearts and making them like unto the Son of God who loves them and gave Himself for them. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. He goes on and addresses not just general sanctification, but this specific sin of fornication, which we've said already is a general term for all sorts of sexual immorality. And clearly this was a problem in the church. That becomes even more evident as you read down through the passage. But when Paul was aware of a particular sin in a church, there was no point in being general. No point in addressing things that were not relevant. Paul, like any preacher, when you know there's an issue, you graciously, tenderly, lovingly, and yet specifically will address the issue. And this is what Paul does upon hearing that this is going on. He's not general. He hears news of members of the church engaging in sexual immorality, and he addresses the sin. The problem of what was going on in this otherwise solid church is one that is common today. You see, the society in which this church existed 
was one in which things like concubines and mistresses and prostitution was commonplace. And that's the same today as well. We live again in such a society. These things are commonplace. They are before us everywhere. And so this is a matter that needs to be addressed. Paul goes on and says in verse 4 that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence. And you see again another that this just enters into the same form and type of sins that are going on. And the issue is that this is not the will of God. It's not the will of God. It is not God's will for us to engage in this moral uncleanness, as it is called in verse 7. God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. This is not the behavior of the believer. This is not the conduct of the Christian. This is not for those that profess the name of Christ. And we were singing the 51st Psalm this morning because David was guilty of this sin and many other sins for that matter. But it was not something he took any delight in and not something that he excused. He, he brings it before God and he, he recognizes against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And he longs for cleansing and for God to renew a right spirit within him. He longs to be put in a place of useful service again. Having been washed in a, a new spirit, a, a new heart, a, a changed attitude, and, a, and God washing away that sin and dealing with his heart in mercy, then he can teach transgressors God's ways and sinners will be converted unto the Lord. There is always a way back. And of course, Paul does not present here a case for the fact that there is no hope for the one who falls into this sin. But he has given warning. Straight, careful, and much-needed warning that the professing believer in the church of Jesus Christ that excuses immor immorality of whatever form in their life, it is a huge red flag and ought to be an alarm to their souls. We have then the practical advice, not just here the purpose of God, but the practical advice that is given. First, there needs to be control. There needs to be control. Verse 4, the apostle says that every one of you, every one of you, should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. The will of God is your sanctification. And so every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Some of the commentators think this possessing his vessel because you read Peter referring to the wife as a weaker vessel, that here he is referring to wives and possessing their wives as vessels. That, that's completely missing the point of the passage. The vessel, you don't have to take that word and apply it exclusively to females, to women. That's not the case at all. In fact, men are vessels as well. They, 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 even Peter is implying that, that the woman is the weaker vessel. Man is a weak vessel. Women are the weaker vessel. They're still vessels, and they're all weak. That's not the context here at all. It's nothing to do with wives. It's dealing with 
how to lay hold upon and control by the grace of God this body, this vessel in which we live. The vessel through which God uses us to bring glory to His name. And everyone in the church needs to know how to possess His vessel in a certain way. Namely, in sanctification and in honor. The Apostle Paul understood this work of the Christian of gaining mastery over his own body. Of working to maintain a sense of, of, of discipline of the body. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, he writes, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And this is him maintaining discipline. Discipline of the body. Discipline of the life. That even though something may be lawful, he will not be brought under the power of anything, even if it's lawful to do. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. In other words, I keep control of my body. I seek to have mastery and keep it in subjection. The body has its carnal desires. It has the flesh, the works of the flesh, and they will rise up and they will manifest themselves in every conceivable way, even in the life of the professing believer, if he does not maintain a sense of discipline over his vessel. And so Paul speaks in this way, and I, I think it's the kind of language that is forgotten today. I think our understanding of, of liberty and our position in Christ brings us to a place to forget that the apostle saw that it was of the utmost importance that this body that was a vessel of wickedness and still has habits that tend that way must be kept under subjection. There's a discipline of preserving it from going into its old habits. Was this not the problem? They were giving themselves to things that were common among the Gentiles and things that they would have done in the past. Parts of the New Testament, you see that. But Paul must have mastery of his body. Now, this control of the vessel, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, is very, very practical. Do you know how to possess your vessel and maintain sanctification, and a place of honor before God. Do you know how to do that? Do you make a study of it? What do I mean? Beloved, we all have our own weaknesses. I said last Lord's Day in the evening, I think, when dealing with the temptations of the Lord Jesus Christ, that maybe it was the previous week, but in dealing with that subject of the temptations They were tailored to the Lord Jesus. And I said, Satan tailors his temptations to every one of us. It's not just broadly thrown out there, not just general missions. Yes, there is a a general purpose to cause us all to fall. But he will tailor specific attacks that are designed to cause you to fall. 
where he knows exactly how to get you to fall. He knows your particular weakness. And if you know anything about the body of Christ, you will know that there's a a huge variety in terms of believers and the various weaknesses and strengths of the body of Christ. Some are overcome by things that others, it never is a problem the entire existence of their lives. And vice versa. It works both ways. We are very different. And what we need to be conscious of is how to know. And this this is the sense of the text. Every one of you should know. So you ask yourself the question, do I know how to possess my vessel in sanctification and honor? Do I know how to maintain myself in the path of holiness and obedience to Christ that I might maintain an honorable testimony before God and before men. Do I know how to do that? And there's no point in me giving out certain rules and things. Every one of you are different. You need to know, you need to understand your own heart is wickedness and how to preserve yourself in a path of holiness and honor before God. There are some people that simply cannot own things and engage in things that others can give themselves to, and it's not a problem. Others can watch TV for 30 minutes, an hour, and particular things, and walk away from it, and never give themselves to things of filth. And others, they get caught up, they get addicted, they sit there, they binge watch, they they have their minds polluted, their hearts distracted, their lives destroyed by the things that they watch. They just, they can't keep control. And you need to know where your weaknesses are and know how to possess your vessel in sanctification and honor. It's a study. It's not something many of us give ourselves to. Reading a little bit about Jonathan Edwards again recently. Um, He was a man, maybe some might argue, took it to the extreme. But nonetheless... It's verses like this that give warrant to the careful, circumspect Christian life that is aware that my heart is prone to every conceivable evil and I need to know the particular weaknesses of my own life and to preserve my walk with God by removing those things that I am particularly weak towards. Knowing how to possess your vessel. This is calling us to a measure of control. Now, we can't do it purely by our own strength. That is evident. We'll see, and we'll look at it a little more later on, but verse 8, he does bring out this point that we are dependent upon the Spirit who hath given unto us His Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is key. Go again to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. These familiar verses in Galatians 5. Verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the, lust, for the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, 
so that you cannot do the things that you would. There are powers, there are forces, your flesh, your vessel. I think we could have those terms interchangeable there. Your vessel, your flesh, lusteth against the Spirit. And the one advocate you have, the one that is standing on your side, strengthening your arm to do right, is the Spirit of God. So how do we know more of the power of the Spirit in our lives? Well, many things could be said, I think. But there's one that certainly, I believe, is essential. In Colossians chapter 3, we are told in verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now this comes on the back of counsel that is given us very practical. Chapter 3 of Colossians, it, it talks about the practical holy living. You seek the things, you set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. You're told in verse 5 to mortify your members which are upon the earth. Again, fornication at the head of that, uncleanness, inordinate affection. All of these things, verse 8, put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, and so on. This is advice, this is counsel in terms of living the Christian life. Verse 13, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgive you, so also do ye. Above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which... Also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. How are you going to discern? How are you going to be aware? How are you going to perceive the danger before you succumb to it? It is by having your mind, your heart filled with the word of God. It has often been said, and it may be very cliche, but its truth still applies. Sin will keep me from this book, and this book will keep me from sin. Both ways. So if I am to know what it is to be kept from sin, I must give myself to the Word. And let me add to that, beloved, the Spirit does not mystically just keep us from sin. The Spirit uses the Word in preserving our hearts and enabling us to possess our vessels. It is as we walk the Christian life and our minds are filled with Scripture and, and we're tempted to do wrong. And again, as we learn from our Lord Jesus Christ in the time of temptation, how did He respond? It is written immediately. The one who lived and walked in the power of the Spirit of God without measure doesn't deal with temptation purely on the basis of the power of the Spirit within his life. But as that Spirit caused him to take the Word of God and use it as the sword of the Spirit, it is the weapon. The Word is the weapon. And the Spirit enables us to wield the Word in a fashion that we can attack the enemy and preserve ourselves from succumbing to the onslaught of temptation in our lives. 
So how do I maintain control of the vessel? How do I know how to possess my vessel in sanctification and honor? I am utterly dependent upon the work of the Spirit of God in my life. But the Spirit will use the word that I fill my mind and heart with. As I read the Scriptures and apply it to my life, as I look to be obedient to it and to remember it and recall it to my mind, the Spirit of God will use that to enable me to possess my vessel and sanctification and honor. So in the advice that Paul gives, there is this need to control. There needs to be control. Secondly, there needs to be contrast as well. Verse 5. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. When he gives his advice in terms of living the right way, he contrasts the life of the believer with the life of the unbeliever. He draws a clear distinction, making them aware of the fact that the way they live is not for the Christian. It's not for them to practice and indulge their lusts in the way the unbeliever does. So he he creates this sharp distinction. The Christian is not like the unbeliever. He is not. And though you may live in a society and in a generation where these sins are rampant and normalized, that's what the unconverted are slaves to. You, a professing believer, are not, are not slaves to the same habits and practices. In Romans chapter 1, we learn that unclean living is, is really commonplace among those that don't know the Lord. Romans 1 verse 24 where it speaks of those that refuse to believe and submit themselves to the gospel. Verse 24, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies or their vessels between themselves. This is what they do who change the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. They sought these vile affections. They changed the truth of God into a lie to excuse these vile affections. And God begins to give them up to these vile affections, for even their woman did change the natural use into that which is against nature Likewise also the man leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another. Man with man working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, Wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, 
haters of God, the spiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. That is our day. And it was the day in which Paul was living. Very similar time. And people would excuse their practice and behavior, turning the truth of God into a lie. Someone stands up and pronounces clarity on the seventh commandment. And people sit there and they say, no, this old-fashioned doesn't apply to today, doesn't apply to me. Excuse all forms of adultery and fornication and uncleanness. They change the truth of God into a lie and God gives them up to their vile affections. And they continue on a path of uncleanness. This is something that's found among the unbeliever. It's not found among the professing Christian. We are to know how to possess our vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. That is not for you. So in the advice Paul gives, there needs to be control. There needs to be a contrast. And there needs to be concern, verse 6, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter Or you can see if you have a margin, the word any is in italics. It could be translated the with a definite article, the matter. I think that makes more sense. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in the matter. Because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also have forewarned you and testified. This is the awful reality. At least in one party. In this church, someone professing Christ in this church was giving themselves to adultery in the church of Christ. They were defrauding their brother. What does it mean to defraud? That is to take advantage of someone for personal benefit. Someone was taking that which belonged to another brother and it relates, it seems, to this whole matter of fornication and adultery And no man, no man go beyond and defraud his brother in the matter. It should not be found among anyone that they would do this to another brother, that they would practice this within the church, that they would give themselves to this. Shocking. And yet, is it an isolated event? Sadly not. You know, it's better to be dead than to be guilty of crimes like this. Is that not what the Lord says? Matthew 18, verse 6, Whoso shall offend one of these little ones, referring to Christians, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. We should be very concerned if there's any kind of defrauding in the mind of anyone within the body of Christ, never mind toward the world. 
When it doesn't, it's wrong no matter how you look at it. And of course, even in that generation, even in this time, even in the midst of the paganism of the first century, taking another man's wife was off limits. It was wrong. So this was bringing utter disgrace to the church. Testimony that this would, would be carried on within the church of Jesus Christ was an awful, awful testimony. And Paul had heard something, and he addresses it very pointedly. That brings us thirdly then to consider the persuasive reasons. What are the reasons that are given here? First, because of God's vengeance. The end of verse 6. Because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. The Lord is the avenger of all such. God will deal with the person who gives themselves to fornication, adultery, and other practices of uncleanness. He will. He will deal with them. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, we read, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. He will judge them. And that judgment may be experienced even on this side of eternity. There may be hard experiences, difficult experiences that people will go through because God will not have the defrauding of a brother, of a sister. He will not see one of His children suffer in this way and just turn a blind eye to it. And those that will give themselves to these kind of unclean behaviors, they will experience God judging them in various ways. In what ways? I can't begin to tell you. All I know is that God judging even those within the body of Christ is not something exclusively found in the Old Testament. It's not just something we see repeated through the book of Numbers. It's something we find throughout the Word of God. We find it in Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira. You have not lied unto men, but unto God. And they're struck down, dead. 1 Corinthians 11, again, warning given. And how people were approaching the Lord's table and their conduct in the house of God. And for this reason, many are sick. And many sleep. God executed judgment upon individuals. Not the discipline of the church. Not the oversight of the body. Things perhaps going on that even the oversight are not aware of. But God is the avenger of all such. He will in mercy stand and advocate for the harmed party. And you look at Paul's language, as we also have forewarned you and testify. God, Paul didn't leave this out. He did not leave it out. The preacher is to give the warnings. The preacher preaches the love of God in Christ. The preacher brings the fullness of the gospel as it's presented in the Son of God. But the preacher is not fulfilling his full mandate if he leaves out the fact that God still is in a position of judge. And even those within the covenant community, within the body of Christ, may experience the hand of judgment upon their lives. Do not trifle with God. Quickly, not only because of God's vengeance, but because of God's purpose. Verse 7. What's His purpose? 
Again, underlining this point, God has not called us onto uncleanness, but onto holiness. This is what he's called us to. It's underlining verse 3 where we began. Underscoring this point, God has not called us onto uncleanness, but onto holiness. Again, this is, this is what the believer is called to. Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5 verse 3, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Fornication, uncleanness, don't let it be named once among you. And again, we read Colossians 3 already, mortifying therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication and so on, putting these things to death. God's purpose is, look at it, holiness. It's not a bad word, beloved. Holiness is Christ-likeness. And without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Then because of the Holy Spirit, verse 8, He therefore that despiseth, the one who rejects this, doesn't despise man, doesn't reject man, he rejects God, who hath also given unto us His Holy Spirit. The Spirit, you see, and what Paul is arguing here, is that, Never forget the Spirit indwells the genuine believer. Every genuine child of God has the Spirit dwelling within. And Paul is making it very easy for people reading on. If a man rejects this, he rejects not man, he rejects God. And he may profess to be a believer, but he can't reject God in this way if the Spirit is in him. So if he's rejecting God, it's because he doesn't have the Spirit. He doesn't have the Spirit. If he has a problem with this, he doesn't have the Spirit. He's not a child of God. God has given on to his people his Holy Spirit. Spirit sanctifies. Spirit changes their lives. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. You know, it amazes me that someone can think the Spirit of God lives in a person and leaves them in a condition of sinfulness and unbelief. You have great preachers. I mean, I say great in terms of their fame, <laughs> not great in terms of what they actually teach. One well-known, long, been preaching a long time in the United States, very well-known ministry. He has a book where he deals with eternal security. And he, sees, he says this, Even if a believer for all practical purposes becomes an unbeliever, his salvation is not in jeopardy. And last, believers who lose or abandon their faith. Believers who lose or abandon their faith will retain their salvation for God remains faithful. Christ will not deny an unbelieving Christian 
his or her salvation because to do so would be to deny himself. This is eternal security brought to nonsense. A man is an unbelieving Christian. But this, this is Christianity in America. Thousands gather and sit under a ministry like this that makes them believe, I walked an aisle, I accepted Jesus into my heart, and no matter what I do, no matter what I do, I am fine. <laughs> Paul says, no, no. He that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within the genuine believer, and they will never reject what God says. Yes, they will go through times of sanctification, experience of learning, absolutely. But whenever the Word is plain, when God says, Thou shalt not commit adultery, when He makes plain that fornication is completely in opposition to His will, they will submit, they will accept, they will understand, they will repent, and by the grace of God, they will change their ways. Purity is serious business, beloved. It is really serious business. We are called to be pure. These sins are not to be named in the body of Christ. And I want to, I want to issue a call to you all. If you are in bondage to these sins, in whatever way, you need help. Yes, you may repent. You say, I've done that a thousand times. But maybe what you need is to come and seek discipleship and help. To come and seek for help in these matters is not, is not a wrong thing to do. Paul hears about this. The church is understanding things are going on, is raised to the leadership. There's a letter written to address this, the matter. In other words, the body is seeking to help the body. Seeking to make sanctification an experience that, is, that is, goes throughout the body where we help one another. And for the sake of your walk with God, indeed for the sake of your eternity, if you have a weakness in these sins, and you need help, then come and seek out that help. There will not be judgment. There will be calls to repentance, certainly, but not judgment. And we'll walk with you, and we will help you in any way we can to understand what your weak point is and how to disciple you through it and get the victory by the help of the Spirit over these sins because they shouldn't be found in the body of Christ. We are called to be pure, we are called unto holiness. May the Lord give us grace and may help us to glorify Christ in understanding the importance of these issues. Let's bow together in prayer. As our heads are bowed, say to you that this is a matter that is a burden. I hate the thought that 
a professing believer struggling and they're going on in addictive habits and behavior and they come to a point where they feel that they can't get the victory and they begin to actually excuse the sin itself and say, well, the Lord knows my heart. I can't get victory over it. And you make, you, you just allow it to have an inroads into your life. Immorality will destroy you. Pornography will destroy you. Feeding this sin in any fashion, in any way, will destroy you. If you need help, you seek it out. If I can be of help to you, I'm your servant for Christ's sake. Lord, we do pray for grace. My word on this matter is plain. Those that habitually do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We pray that Thou wilt help us to hear the warnings. We pray that this congregation will be preserved, graciously preserved. We pray that these sins will not be named once among us. But if they are, Lord, cause the gospel to prevail. Claim the victory for Thyself. Set captives free. Wash and transform as you did for David. We plead with thee, O God, purify our hearts. Help us to know how to possess our vessel. So bless us. Let thy word be hidden in our hearts that we might not sin against thee. Bless our fellowship here before we leave and be with us in the afternoon. And as we return here this evening, may we have hearts prepared to worship. May you gather souls in. And may we hear from thee afresh. Save souls even this morning. There are lost ones before us. They have given themselves to the practice of the Gentiles, they long to exercise themselves in that which is unclean and unholy. God, bring them under conviction. Have mercy upon their never-dying souls. Hear us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.